So this week we began to settle, settle in a little bit more in our new place. Thankfully, uh, boxes are getting unpacked and my wife, who is a master at making a home beautiful and a home, is doing a great job. So thankful for her and all that she's doing. We got the fence installed for the backyard. Uh, the kids have loved playing in the backyard. But I think the happiest member of our family was Roxy, our dog. As I posted on Facebook, Roxy thought the Millennium Kingdom had started. <laughs> our dog is a post mill. She is convinced things are getting better and better. <laughs> However, I got to thinking about this a little bit later. As the dog, dog sat on the back porch eyeing the backyard, looking out into the yard, I'm convinced she was happy for totally different reasons than I first thought. For just a minute or two later, she darted off the back porch an all-out race, barking at the top of her lungs in a full stream, running as fast as she could to grab a hold of a squirrel. She was convinced, if I get that thing, I'm having lunch. She was going to kill that squirrel if she could get there fast enough. Nope, we are not in the millennium. She wanted the little animal to be her lunch, and she didn't care. The lion is not laying down with the lamb, and neither is Roxy lying down with the squirrels. As good as this world is, it pales in comparison to what God's creation was before the fall. Everyone and everything is affected by the curse, isn't it? Image bearers hate each other. Animals hate each other. The world has a beauty of God's creation. It's obvious. You see it. You can't walk on this property and not say, wow, God, right? But the curse is still prevalent. We're not in the kingdom, beloved. We see it in the Olympics this week, right? Everybody's talking about peace, and you have... North and South Korea represented together and everybody is supposedly happy and loving each other. But we know what's going on in their hearts, don't we? We know deep down in their souls they hate each other because mankind hates each other. Why? Because we live in a lost world, a world that's affected by the curse. And as we saw last week, the God of this world, Satan, is ruling and reigning. He's doing a great detriment to this world. And mankind hates each other. We saw, however, that Jesus, despite the God of this world offering temptations, he did not fall. Jesus stood true, didn't he? He used the word of God. He stood fast. He proclaimed, this is the way, and that is to follow the Father's will no matter what. But beloved, though Jesus passed the temptations, most of us, I, I, would, I would imagine all of us in the room fell to some kind of temptation this week, didn't we? Maybe it was only for a minute or two, but we all sinned. We're not in the millennium kingdom, are we? These aren't glorified bodies that we have. And Jesus isn't ruling and reigning on this earth. And Satan is still ruling and doing many bad things. Even Jesus, after he died and was buried and rose from the dead, the millennium kingdom didn't start, did it? Contrary to a lot of people saying that we have some kind of fulfilled kingdom and right now we're in this kingdom, the proof of this is nowhere to be found. <laughs> The kingdom is not here now. Things are going from bad to worse, aren't they? The proof is everywhere we look, in our broken human relationships and even in the animal world. But we have hope, don't we? Our hope is in who? Jesus Christ, our King. And we're looking forward to that day, aren't we? When he returns 
and he sets things up the right way, and it looks the way it's supposed to. So far in Matthew, we've seen Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had promised concerning Israel's Messiah. His lineage was through Abraham and King David. He was a son of Abraham and a son of David. He was born of a virgin, as the Old Testament had prophesied. He was born in Bethlehem, as the Old Testament had alluded to. He fulfilled the pattern of coming out of Egypt, as the Old Testament pointed to. He fulfilled being considered an outcast by being named a Nazarene. He fulfilled being the Messiah who had a forerunner who came before him announcing his coming. He fulfilled all righteousness at his baptism, revealing he was the Messiah. He identified with mankind. He identified with the believing remnant of Israel. He pointed forward to his coming death, burial, and resurrection. He was the righteous king of Israel, the son of David. He is our hope. That's what this book's all about. It's about Christ and who he is and why we serve and follow him. Then we saw last week Jesus was tested by Satan. And he passed the test. He was shown to be glorious. And he passed it with flying colors. He chose the Father's will over all temptations. And he submitted to the word of God, not anything the human desires might want. Today we see Jesus begins his ministry in our passage. There are other events at the start of Jesus' ministry that Matthew doesn't record, according to the other Gospels. Matter of fact, I I, I think Jesus had already met John and James and Peter and Andrew, as as John's Gospel talks about. But Matthew chooses to start with another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to emphasize that. Starting in... Galilee, the place where he will then end up in Matthew chapter 28 when he gives the Great Commission. Starting in Galilee with a focus on the fulfillment of prophecy again. Remember, that word fulfillment is mentioned over and over and over through Matthew's gospel. Everything that the Old Testament said about the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All that God said is coming true. So as we go through today, I want you to notice some features of the start of Jesus' ministry. There's four features that we're going to look at. First, I want you to notice Jesus offered the kingdom to his people. Jesus offered the kingdom to his people. We see this in verse 17 of chapter 4. And then we'll talk about Matthew chapter 3 again. We'll go back there in a second. But I want you to notice in Matthew 4, 17... The summary of Jesus' message is this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. This is a summary of his message. This is a summary of what Jesus proclaimed over and over, as we will see. The summary of the message Jesus says here is exactly the same message that John the Baptist had given back in John in Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. Look, in Matthew 3:2 it states, John states, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Now today I'm, my message is going to be a little bit more heavy on the teaching side of things. Y'all bear with me. It's necessary so you get the good context especially in light of starting, Lord willing, the Sermon on the Mount next week. We need context. So, here's a question for you to think on. Was it, the kingdom of heaven, a real kingdom to come? Was it a real kingdom? What would the people have thought by the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is near? What did John the Baptist think the kingdom was when he said the kingdom is near or is it it's at hand what did Jesus mean by the kingdom what is the nature of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus offered well there's several views and I want to summarize them by three and I want to kind of dig in a little bit on this there's three views of what the kingdom is all about there's first 
the fulfilled spiritual only kingdom. The fulfilled spiritual only kingdom. That is, spiritual kingdom blessings, the physical and spiritual kingdom blessings of the Old Testament scriptures are all just one summarized spiritual thing that's going to happen. And so Jesus was saying, I'm here and there's the spiritual kingdom is here. Not near, but here, they would say. This context or this, this uh, idea, this concept didn't arise until Augustine in the late 300s. Augustine talked about this idea of a spiritual kingdom and he began to allegorize many of the kingdom passages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, making everything a spiritual kingdom. As you can guess, I'm not about that view. We'll, go, we'll look at some other ones though. Second, there's the already not yet spiritual kingdom. So there's, yes, there's this spiritual idea, but there's also a physical idea to come. Now, I do think that there's some elements of this that uh, appear to show some validity. This view allows for a real kingdom to come that has the physical blessings, but it doesn't allow for the possibility of Israel's national repentance and restoration. That's a big difference. A lot of the people that believe in this already not yet concept of this kingdom say that national Israel really doesn't have a plan. There's not really a plan for restoring national Israel. It often limits, the, uh, limits it only to spiritual revival of Israel, but not a national ethnic revival of Israel. The problem is, is that the Bible appears to point to this over and over and over. Throughout the whole Old Testament, you see this concept that God does have a plan for national Israel. Even in the New Testament, we have passages that talk about Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 144,000. What is that? Is that just spiritual? No, I think it is literal. And that there will be a day when national Israel will be restored. So the already not yet has some, has some validity and some of the ideas that we are enjoying some of the new covenant and some of the blessings of the kingdom to come, but it doesn't cover all the bases. Third, the third view and the one that I lean to is the full manifestation of the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament has not happened yet. And when Jesus said the kingdom is near didn't mean that the kingdom was here, but the kingdom is near. It's, it's close. It's still yet to happen, even today, beloved. This view states that John and Jesus gave a full offer of the kingdom to Israel. But because of Israel's rejection of their king, the kingdom promises to national Israel were put on hold for now. In other words, they don't get it because they rejected their king. They needed to do what? They needed to repent. They needed to follow what John had said and what Jesus had said. He had said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what did they do? They killed him. They rejected him. Now, you'll see in these places, you'll say, well, there's large clouds following him. But remember something, beloved. At the end, who is with him? No one. Not even his own disciples stayed with him. Who was one that denied him three times? Peter. This view still allows, this, this last view that there's a coming kingdom, it still allows for salvation in the interim till the kingdom comes. The idea that we can be saved through faith in Christ by grace alone for the glory of God. This Many of the blessings of the new covenant are still enjoyed today. And that doesn't mean that when I get to Matthew chapter 5 that you need to just turn off your ears and say, oh, that's for Israel. You're not going to see that because the reality is, is a lot of the truths in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are still applicable for us today. But Jesus was offering the kingdom and calling them to repentance and showing Israel, as he had shown for years and years and years, he had called them over and over, hadn't he? Repent, 
Turn back to me. And what did they do? They rejected him. So when he shows up on the scene, what do they do? They reject him again. Again, personally, I lean to this third view. So did John the Baptist think the earthly kingdom was a real physical possibility? I believe John the Baptist did. I think John the Baptist, when he was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near, a kingdom of heaven is near, he was thinking, if you repent, what's going to happen? The kingdom's going to be here. This is going to be great. I think John the Baptist looked at those Old Testament passages and thought, okay, this is a possibility. This is real. You could repent. Why do I say this? Well, look over at Matthew 11 for a second. In Matthew 11, y'all know what's happening in Matthew 11. John the Baptist is dealing with being imprisoned. <laughs> in verse 2, it says, Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now wait a second. Why would he ask this question? Isn't he the one that he, I shouldn't be baptized. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. He knew he was the Christ, right? Well, I think, and again, as we go through, I think this will be developed as we go along. I think John the Baptist was like, wait, this doesn't look anything like a kingdom to me. I'm in prison. This isn't. He did not believe in realized kingdom eschatology, beloved. He didn't think the kingdom was now. He was like, what's going on? And he's like, what's going on? Are you really the one? And you know Jesus encourages him, right? Sends message. And he quotes from Isaiah 35, which we'll read in a little bit. The point is, is that Jesus is the Messiah and the kingdom was being offered, but they were What? Rejecting it as a whole. John and Jesus also, throughout their ministry, it appears that they never explained in the initial offer a spiritual-only kingdom. It doesn't say it's only this. They didn't say all we know about the coming kingdom that is centered in Jerusalem is wrong. Don't listen. They didn't give an Augustinian reinterpretation of the Old Testament kingdom promises. They didn't have allegorized Old Testament land promises and restoration of national Israel promises. Their hearers wouldn't have expected a spiritual-only kingdom. I don't think they did. So again, don't get me wrong. There are spiritual realities of the kingdom that we're enjoying today. That is the blessings of being in the new covenant that the Holy Spirit now lives within us. These blessings are also characteristic of the kingdom to come. That is, the Spirit's present reality that He's living and abiding in us. But the new covenant also includes a restoration of national Israel, a redemption of the rest of the world too, a redemption of creation. The lion will lay down with the lamb, as Romans 8 talks about. The kingdom reign of mankind over creation with their king as its reigning leader, Jesus. This has not happened yet, correct? We don't look at a world that the kingdom is now. We look at a world that's dying for their king to return and set things straight. The kingdom of heaven is not here yet. If it was here, the God of this world would be bound and he wouldn't be blinding the minds of the unbelieving, right? And the vast majority of the world would not be rejecting Christ but they would be embracing Christ. So, how close was the kingdom of heaven, really? When Jesus said it was near, what does the kingdom of heaven is near? Or as the King James say, the kingdom of heaven is nigh, the old 1611. And does that hand mean? What's that mean? Well, I believe it's the kingdom had drawn near, but was not actually there. It was close. The idea of if they repented and Israel embraced their Messiah, then the kingdom would be there and it would be established. But we know in God's providence, there read 
subjection was necessary for the kingdom to really come, right? The idea of nearness is closely tied to imminence. It's on the verge of happening at any moment. Now look with me at a couple passages. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 46, we have the same word used. Matthew 26. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand, is near. Now, who's talking? Jesus is talking about who? Judas. Was Judas there? No, but he was near. Wasn't that he was there? It was that he was near. How about this one? Romans 13, 12. Same word used. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Is the night gone yet? No. But is it near? Yes, it's near. It's not there. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. How about this one in James chapter 5? You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Well, James knew that it wasn't there. If he was Augustinian, if he was allegorizing, he would have said, the kingdom's here now. But it's not. Get ready, for the kingdom is near. At hand, back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the events were near but haven't actually happened. It doesn't mean here, it means near. It's on the brink or impending. The kingdom had not already arrived. Yes, its king was there, but the phrase its king states is the kingdom is near, not here. And by the way, afterwards, the same happens. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we see the disciples didn't say, look, the kingdom's here. They say what? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say, so when they had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, this is after the resurrection, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were looking. They were waiting. Folks, it's very clear that the disciples understood the kingdom was not here. There was a good news that a kingdom was coming and that the king had come, but one day he would return and bring the kingdom. Luke chapter 21, verse 31, the disciples discussed the coming of the kingdom being near. The imminence of the coming kingdom was and is still a reality. I want to look at a couple more. Y'all hang in there. I know, lots of teaching today, but very important stuff. Foundational, crucial information. Look over in your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3. The Old Testament had said throughout the Old Testament, when Israel would repent, there would be spiritual and physical restoration. That even their neighbors would quit fighting against them. The Old Testament promises this over and over and over. If they will repent, God will bless them. There's this coming kingdom when Israel repented as a whole. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, that's to the northern tribes in Israel, Return, faithless Israel declares the Lord. What's that? It's another way of saying what? Repent, right? I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Confess your sin. Boy, doesn't that sound just like John the Baptist? It sounds just like Jesus. Same thing. That you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your, your favor to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to where? 
Zion, that is not heaven, beloved. That's Jerusalem. That's Israel. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on your not on knowledge and not understand and understanding, excuse me. It shall be, look verse 16, it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. That's not heaven. And declares the Lord, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their willed or of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk together with the house of Israel, and they will come together and from, from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Beloved, this has not happened. This has not happened. This is a kingdom to come when they repent. Very, very clear. How about this one? Everybody knows this passage, right? You've probably heard sermons on it. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. Anybody quote this verse before? If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from the heaven, from heaven, and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We've all heard that, right? How many of you quoted that one before? You've heard sermons on that one. And you've thought, see, if I repent, he's going to forgive my sin and he's going to heal my land. None of us use that last little phrase, do we? We do. We've missed it. Trust me. Guess what we're going to do when the summer hits in right here? We're going to cut the grass a lot. And it's going to be sweaty. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be obvious. And some of those rodents are probably going to give us a hard time. Those squirrels. The fact of the matter is, is that this is for Israel. When they repent and they turn to God. Now, is there application for us? Yes, I think there's application. And what is that? That God is a compassionate God. He's a gracious God, isn't he? And if we repent, what does he do? He forgives our sin. Praise God, right? Contrary to many who claim this verse is for our own personal promise, though, this is for God, this is for God's people. Israel. So yes, we have forgiveness available to us in Christ, but God doesn't promise to heal our land. And by the way, the United States of America is not the land. I promise it's not the promised land. Contrary to even some of the early people that would say that America was the new promised land. It's not. It's part of the world, but it's not the land. So who was the kingdom offered to first? Go back to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we see John first and 3, and then John, uh, Jesus in John chapter 4, or in Matthew 4, ah, all those names. John the Baptist in, in Matthew 3, and then Jesus in Matthew 4 say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the context is clear. Jesus was offering the kingdom to Israel. Jesus' ministry at first was coming to offer himself and the kingdom to the apple of his eye, Israel. We will see it's offered to Israel first throughout the book of Matthew. I believe Jesus limited his message to the Jews only, and it is very important. Look over at Matthew chapter 10. You need more proof. Matthew chapter 10. Who does he go to first? The Jews. He offered to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That comes after his resurrection. The disciples go out from Galilee then. 
In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sends out his disciples. Look what he tells them. The 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is what? Near, at hand. He's saying to the Jews, the kingdom of heaven is near. It is a real possibility. Repent, turn to me, turn to the Messiah, embrace him. The kingdom is offered to the Jews first. So what was required for Israel to receive the kingdom? Back to 417. Repentance. Repentance. Repentance was an imperative for entrance into the kingdom. National repentance was required. The whole nation needed to repent in order for the kingdom to come. In fact, Israel turned, however, on their Messiah. And they did what? They said these words, and we'll see it eventually. They have no king but Caesar. They say, we don't want the king, we won't repent, and so what does that mean? The kingdom is not there, it's not for them. At least now, not yet. So salvation is a part of, king, of the kingdom, yes, but not the sum total of the kingdom. The intent of John and Jesus was to offer the kingdom and to call for repentance. So, here we go. We just did a very teaching-heavy stuff, doctrine stuff. Basically, we found out that Jesus was offering to who? The Jews, right? So, how many of you, well, there's a few of you in the room, actually, are Jewish? Does that mean it's only for the Jewish people in our room? No. No, there's application for us. What is some of the application? Here's one. Take it. Jesus offered the kingdom to national Israel first. What does that mean? He chose to give them grace, show them mercy first, to offer this message to them first. What does that do for you? God picked the Jews first. What goes on inside your heart when you hear that? Well, it might be like some of us. Well, why not me? Why, why not us? Why not at the same time, right? Make it fair. Have we ever thought those kind of thoughts? Yeah? Well, God doesn't always work the way that we think. And God's not obligated to give every nation, make every nation the apple of his eye. Are you okay with that? What if America is not the apple of God's eye? Are you okay with that? I am. If he saves me, I'm happy. How about you? I just want some crumbs under the table. I'm a dog. Right? God's sovereign. God's ways are his ways. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Praise God that he got to us. He's not obligated to get to us. He could have sent us all to hell. And we would have been all what? Deserving of that. But God. God's choosing doesn't depend on us or our view of ourselves. God's choosing is based on his sovereign plan and his grace. By the way, Paul talks of this. If you think you're something special, you might find yourself on the other end of things in Romans chapter 11. When things turn around and he does restore and save all Israel. It should call for humility amongst us all, correct? I know much of the world hates national Israel. We should identify with natural Israel in this way. We should see we're no better than them. We're no better than them. If you think you deserve to be given grace first or at the same time as others, then you may not really get who God is. 
and who is the creator and who we are, the creation. At the same time, this message is still the same and it is now being proclaimed to all humanity and that is this, listen, we too were responsible for the death of the Messiah, weren't we? We too, it was our sin that held him there. And so what should we do? We should repent and embrace him and trust, on, trust in him and trust in his timing too. Beloved, we live in a curse-filled world and death is everywhere. One of our, our dear brothers, his mother passed away this week. Very sad. We live in a sad world, don't we? But our hope is in Christ Jesus the Lord, right? The one who came, so we repent and we trust in him. We don't trust in ourselves. And one day he will wipe away every tear. And one day the curse will be lifted. And one day if you die at the age of 100, it will be considered dying like a child. One day it's going to be great, isn't it? What do we do now? We endure and we persevere and we hold on to Christ and we proclaim the good news of the kingdom to come. It's coming. <laughs> Beloved, we have the same responsibility. That's why Paul in Acts 17, look what he tells the people. He tells the same, same the people in Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What is the day when he will judge? Guess what? That's the day when he returns. And he sets up his kingdom. And he will rule and reign. And this is what we look forward to. Judgment is coming on the world, right? And what do we tell the world that judgment's coming? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We have that same message, don't we? Jesus came, the king came, and he confirmed all of his things, confirmed that he is the king. And one day he's going to return. Get ready. So the first feature, I'm sorry that was long, but the first feature of the kingdom was Jesus offered the kingdom to his people first. Next we see Jesus offered the kingdom to the least likely of his people. Look at verse 12 to 16. This should give all of us great encouragement. Look at it. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. This is not where you would think he would go. And after leaving, verse 13, this is, there's a skip in time. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah, the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. What did Jesus do? He withdrew into Galilee. Nazareth is in Galilee, and so is Capernaum. It's an area. Give me a map. I'll try to show you. Oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Maybe. The big... Oh, I think I have this, too. Look at this. Ooh, I've got a pointer. How about it? That is Galilee. Okay, Capernaum's right here. Sorry for the features. And Nazareth is down here, right there. So Capernaum's up there. Nazareth is here. It's all in Galilee. All right, so Jesus goes to the north, goes to the northern area. This would not have been the place that people would pick. He picks this area that was, for lack of a better term, infiltrated with lots of Gentiles. Lots of Gentiles were there, but the Jews were the ones that he was talking to. Those were the people that he had focused on. This was a very Gentile region. This was an area that had compromised. 
that had lots of working with the, Jew, uh, with the Roman people, the other pagan nations. Jesus focused, however, on these Jewish people in that area, despite their being affected by the Gentile world. Many of the Jews in that area had succumbed to the pagan realities of their Gentile neighbors. But what happened is, is in the synagogues, you know what would happen? The Pharisees would all stand up and say, don't associate with those pagans. And there was this idea that it would come out that if you lived around Gentiles, just know that they're below you. They're beneath you. Okay? So he's in this region that has lots and lots of Gentiles. And what should the Jews have been to those Gentiles? Should have been a light, shouldn't they? They should have been telling those Gentiles, our Messiah's coming. One day he's going to show up, and then the kingdom's going to be here. You got to embrace the Messiah. They should have been saying that, but instead, what were they saying? We're Jewish. We're better than you. And in the synagogues, everybody got together and say, Look at me. I'm clean. And those people out there, they're dirty, like this, you know, our neighbors over here. They're unclean. We're clean. You know what that is? Self righteousness. This is all a setup. Why is this a setup? Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. There's going to be one big message that he hammers over and over and over and over. You think you're something? No, you're not. You need to repent. You need to embrace Christ. You need to embrace God. You need to turn from your sin of self-righteousness. But these few, these Jews up around the pagans, being infiltrated and uh, affected by them, those were the ones Jesus went to. He went up to them to tell them what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus ministering in the area was prophesied by Isaiah. Isaiah 9 that we read is mentioned in our passage. And this was prophecy that Jesus would come, that there would be a light in this dark place. And Jesus fulfilled that again. He fulfilled all that the Old Testament had said. Now here we see Jesus was once again the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. So we have seen Jesus offered the kingdom to the least likely of his people. Now, one more note on this. Matthew's gospel makes a very important point that at the end, where does he send them? Tell them, I will meet you where? In Galilee. You're going back to Galilee. Why? Because after his death, burial, and resurrection, lights come on. Whoa, we've got a sin problem. Christ died. We have hope. Now you can go spread that message to the nations. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he went to the least likely. And look who he called. Third, Jesus called the least likely to be wholehearted followers. In verse 18 to 22, it states, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat of Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. What's his point? His point is, is that there were still Jews that would repent, that he would call, and they turned and they followed him. It was a small remnant. But look at who they are. Ah, oh, this gives me so much hope. How about you? Fishermen. I wouldn't have picked fishermen, would you? I mean, we pick the, we pick the ones that look good, right? The Tom Brady's of this world is what we would pick. Some of y'all. <laughs> Some of y'all are Philadelphia fans. But. but he picked fishermen. This gives me so much hope, and I know this is still true today. You know why? He picked a rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman. 
Praise God, right? He picks the least likely. And he saves us. And he saves us for wholehearted what? Obedience and commitment. And these guys, obviously the Father was working on their heart. The Spirit had changed their heart. Obviously, right? Why? They left everything and followed him. And it says immediately they did it. Jesus picked fishermen to be his primary disciples, his apostles, the ones that would then go back to Galilee after the resurrection and do what? Proclaim him. Proclaim the kingdom to come. Jesus called them to leave everything and follow him. And by the way, he didn't call them to have a nice rosy life either, did he? Out of these four, three of them died by persecution. Were martyred. Do you think they were thinking at the time of their martyr, oh, yep, this has got to be the kingdom. No. No, they were still waiting. But they were proclaiming the king. Beloved, Jesus called them to change their professions from commercial fishermen to fishermen of, fisher of men to be those that would proclaim the truth. And we're called to that same thing. That's applicational to us, isn't it? What is your main mission in life? What's your main purpose in life? When you're here on Sunday, you're saying to go to church, worship God, right? I hope the same is tomorrow morning when you wake up. When you wake up in the morning and you go to your job, your main role is not to what? Do that job. You should do that job, and you should do it very well, but you should do it for whose glory? God's glory, for Christ's glory, and you should do it to what? Proclaim Him. To proclaim Him. Why? Because we know the King has come, and we know the King is coming. We know He died, and He rose from the dead, and He's reigning, and He will return. And so what do we proclaim? We proclaim Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you, beloved, listen to me closely. Make proclaiming Christ your main mission. Just like these guys. Making disciples, that's what we're about, right? Because we know him. And we know he's, what he's all about. And the disciples responded with obedience. And the final feature we, I want you to notice is the Jesus fulfilled all that the Jewish Messiah was to be. We see this in the last couple verses here. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among all the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What do we see? Jesus showed that he was the Messiah. And he showed that he was the kind of king that could bring about what? Healing. He was the kind of king that could eradicate what? The curse. The effects of it. He shows it. This is obviously pointing back again to Isaiah where it talks about what the Messiah was going to do. What was the Messiah going to do? In, there, in, in Isaiah 35 it states, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the hot of the jackals in the resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. Wait a second. It, did it stop? Here's what happens, beloved. It's so important because Jesus then references this when he talks to John the Baptist later when he says, are you the expected one? Well, here's what we do know. King Jesus is able to make what's going to happen in the kingdom Happen. Why do we know it? Because when he first showed up, what did he do? He healed the people. 
He was accomplishing those things. They got a foretaste of what the kingdom would be like in the sense that the king was healing people. Miracles are a taste of the restoration to come as Locke states. But you and me both know that those miracles were to do what? Point to King Jesus. And you and I both know something else, don't we? We know that those word of faith healers are garbage, aren't they? It would have been real easy for me to be at the bedside of Joe's mom last week and, hey, if we're in the kingdom, you're healed. Get up, mom. Those faith healers don't visit the hospitals, do they? King Jesus can heal. But the healing and all of the taking away of the curse is not yet. We're waiting on that day. And what do we do till then? Do we complain and we say, hey, I don't like my circumstances here. I don't like it that my body hurts when I wake up in the morning. Anybody else with me? No. What do we do? We persevere. We hold on. We hold on because who is coming? Christ Jesus, our King. We trust in Him, don't we? We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in the circumstances. We don't look to the world to fix its problems. We don't say the peace that the world offers is true, right? Because listen, the peace that the world offers is false peace. You know why? Because it's not brought about through the reign of righteousness. The reign of righteousness brings true peace. And that will come when Christ Jesus returns. So at this point, some of you in the room are saying, well, man, that was a lot of deep stuff. Got a lot of information. Got a lot of information on what's coming, but not a lot for here right now. What am I going to do? Well, beloved, if, if your life is all about here and now, you're in for a bumpy ride. Anybody struggle at work this week? Anybody have lost relatives that just kind of seem to really break your heart all the time? Anybody suffering? If your hope is here, right now, we're to be pitied of all people. Our hope is in the Lord and His return. This is not my home. I don't care how beautiful this land is. This is all going to be burned up one day. This is nothing. Christ Jesus is Lord. And one day he'll return and reign. That's who we're looking for. That's who we trust in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, into the world. Thank you for these great promises. Father, we, forgive, we ask for your forgiveness. Our complaining hearts. Our hearts that often want things to be better now and we complain if it doesn't happen. Lord, we pray that you will help us to rest in you, to abide in Christ, to enjoy the Lord, to put Christ first. Lord, we pray that the things of this world will become strangely dim in the light of the glory of your Son. Help us, Father, to enjoy Christ Jesus this week. Help us, Father, to proclaim repentance and faith in Him to our world. Help us, Father, to persevere through trials and tribulations. Help us, Father, bring glory to Your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen.